Hey, tennis fans, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada, also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre, and happy to be here for our fourth episode of 2021, and also pleased to land a terrific guest, uh, ESPN broadcaster and former doubles great Pam Shriver this week. Yeah, Pam's a great guest and someone that I know we've wanted on the podcast for quite some time, and it's funny because for you and me, we definitely know her more as the broadcasting uh, Pam Shriver, uh, as opposed to the tennis player Pam Shriver, which was uh, a little bit before even kind of like my first conscious uh, tennis memories. But when you look back on on her repertoire and, and what she was able to accomplish, um, absolutely stunning. And, you know, for me, I, I, I love history in general, and then obviously tennis history, sporting history. And so learning a little bit more about some of these these players that were just before my time um, is, is really intriguing to go back and look. And I mean, I'll be honest, the first place I look generally is, is Wikipedia, okay, which mm-hmm. is not a great historical source, uh, necessarily accurate source, but still. And when you pull up her record, especially in doubles, you just see those green W's all over all over the screen it just blew me away when I was looking. Yeah, yeah. Go go to that Grand Slam performance timeline right away, and it's a, a marvel to see. Um, I, I didn't really have the privilege of watching Pam Shriver play, um, just because slightly different eras, but uh, have enjoyed her work, obviously, as a, as a broadcaster. And like you, I think I was blown away when I, I went back and looked at the stats of just how good she was. I, I don't think it included in, uh, obviously, the year to me that stands out is 1984. Uh, a calendar slam in doubles with Martina Navratilova is, uh, is just awesome. So um, I was thrilled to get the chance to speak with her this week. And, uh, you know, we covered a little bit about her career and we covered her career as a, as a broadcaster as well. And she uh, certainly gave some insights uh, as to what's going on currently in Australia as we gear up for the Australian Open. So um, without further ado, here's uh, my interview this week with uh, Pam Shriver. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, and now uh, thrilled to be joined by one of the greatest double players in our sports history. She won 21 Grand Slam titles, including four in a single calendar year alongside Martina Navratilova. She was an exceptional singles player as well and former U.S. Open finalist, and she's now one of the sports premier broadcasters uh, for ESPN. Pam Shriver, thanks uh, so much for joining us on the program. Oh, well, Canada has been one of my favorite places to both play when I played and to broadcast at the Rogers Cup. So it's uh, great to connect today and talk about tennis. And boy, Canada has some amazing talent um, that's been coming up. And I really appreciate uh, the system up there, not known for uh, the best of tennis climates, um, 24-7, 365. But you've uh, managed to figure it out really well. Yeah, I must say, I think uh, we've We've felt rather spoiled over the past couple of years, uh, just the way uh, tennis has boomed in this uh, in this country. Uh, I'm sure we can get to that later. Uh, just uh, maybe maybe for our listeners who who don't know that much about you, maybe you can tell us a bit about your background when you first began playing tennis, and then kind of eventually transitioning that into a a great pro career. Well, I started to play tennis um, in Baltimore, Maryland, where I was born and raised. In my parents uh, raised three daughters. Uh, They loved to play tennis. My grandparents loved to play tennis. Um, My grandmother, my mom's side, uh, she lived to 96 and she used to, I remember this time, uh, what, about 15 years ago, she listened to her last Australian Open 
all night long, she'd stay up, got a little rundown, caught pneumonia and passed away a couple of weeks after the Australian Open. And I always thought that was a great last few weeks for her to listen to me and to listen to her favorite sport, watch it. And um, anyway, so it's a family sport. And I just happened to have some natural hand-eye talent that took me um, on the journey towards the pro tour. It wasn't because I had fast feet. I had really fast hands. Um, and yeah, it was my hand-eye coordination. I think at six foot one, I had a game that I built around my height with a good, really good serve. And I loved to come to net and I'd put pressure on my opponent to hit passing shots time and time again. And so I played percentage tennis given the way I was uh, built in my skill set. That's a, that's a brand of tennis that I absolutely love to see. And I, I would love for it to make more of a comeback uh, in the singles realm, but it, maybe it seems difficult to, to envision uh, at times. But uh, j- just speaking to maybe the tour at large uh, right now, and just, just the women's side, you mentioned your great hand-eye coordination. And, and when I think of your game, uh, the word that kind of springs in my head is variety. Uh, I think you play with a lot of variety. And I look at a couple of the players on the women's tour are, are world number one one like Ashley Barty, who's set to return. I think she's of that same kind of mold. And then I I think our Canadian US Open champion Bianca is of that same kind of mold. Do you think maybe we're we're heading in a direction on the women's tour where we could be seeing more variety and creativity in terms of game styles? I love the quality of athletes at the top of the women's game right now. Um, You know, both there's there's some diversity in size, obviously a lot of diversity in uh, geographic where they're from. Uh, you mentioned um, Bianca and Drescu and Ash Barty, two amazing athletes. Um, Simona Halep and so impressed. Uh, she's not all that big, but boy, she has tremendous ball striking ability. She's so fast. Um, so I, I do. I've become really more and more entertained the last few years uh, with, with women's tennis. And as far as um, you can watch a match and if you had a checkbox of all the different shots that you can see during a tennis match, most women's tennis matches now, you'd check off almost every single box. You see much more variety than what I think uh, I would see eight, 10, 12 years ago. So I'm, I think um, the fact that we've had so many different winners in a row uh, is so different from the men's game, but it sort of complements the men's game while the men's game has been fairly predictable um, with the big three few surprises thrown in um the women's game has been all over the place Mm -hmm. as we still see serena trying to chase history yeah um and we we still get some of those great storylines as you mentioned i think the men's side is kind of very big three heavy focused and those types of storylines but uh the women's remains remains wide open which makes it so so exciting I, i wonder if we do have a few stars kind of emerging and ready to completely take the reins. The, the name that stands out for me, at least, is, is Naomi Osaka. Is she a player who, who could be built for, you know, sustained success over the next decade or so, do you believe? Well, sustained success, that's been a problem since Serena was uh, winning uh, multiple majors in the couple of years before she got pregnant. Um, sustaining success is uh, becoming a really difficult thing in the women's game. Does Osaka have the, um, the ability, the overall talent as far as physical, mental, emotional strengths? Yes, but it's kind of like, I won't believe it till I see it. Uh, I mean, now that she has won 
three majors. I thought the way she won her the U.S. Open just a few months ago, uh, with the pressure also added uh, that she took on um, to carry forward Black Lives Matter and social justice, uh, wearing a different mask for all seven ma ma major matches that she she won to win her third title. I, I thought it was one of the great athletic performances of the last few years. Um, so yes, she has the ability, but let's just wait and see because there is great parity and she has that kind of big game where she can have those off days. Um, and so it's very easy in the middle of a major with seven matches to have that off day. And let's face it, Jen Brady in that semifinal against Osaka, that was one of the great matches played in 2020. Uh, just came within a couple of points of uh, ending that great run. Yeah, that was uh, certainly an incredible match. Uh, you say wait and see, and I, I feel like that's what a lot of tennis fans are are doing right now, gearing up for for the Australian Open, which uh, a tournament is uh, one you know so well. You won seven double slams there, and you made three semifinals and singles. Um, what are some of your best memories competing down under? Well, I love to play on grass courts. So when I started to play in Australia, believe it or not, I started in 1979. I played all the tournaments leading up to the Australian Open, which was played over Christmas time. And I was not yet willing to be away from my family. I didn't want to miss Santa Claus in Baltimore. So I actually flew home and didn't play the Australian Open. But that really is more of an indicator that the Australian Open had really lagged behind the other three majors. So I played every single year uh, until I retired in um, 96, maybe 97. I played doubles down there. I'm not sure, but it was almost a 20 year run down there. Um, I have a strong connection to Australia. My kid's dad is George Lazenby who played James Bond, the only Australian James Bond. Uh, I have a lot of close friends down there besides Martina. One of my favorite doubles partners was Liz Smiley. We got to the Australian open finals I think in 93 or 94 which was the last time I got to a major doubles final so some of my favorite people are Australians but I guess as far as a memory I would probably have to go back to the Kuyong years because even though it was tiny little club and it needed to grow and we needed to move um, for me I loved grass courts it suited my game so well and that's where I made my three semis and where Martina and I started our dominance that's a uh, that's excellent and I, I'm just looking into this year now and it's we're you know looking at a, a beginning of a season like no other completely unique and in terms of the situation going on 72 players facing 14 day quarantine just if you were one of these athletes what do you think your approach is exactly getting ready for for a lead-up tournament before the major and I'm also wondering is the bigger challenge do you imagine that the physical aspect not being physically ready or maybe the mental component as you point to your head yeah I think it's a combination of both I actually have thought a lot about it what if what if this had been during uh, my time um, I think a few things are really important. I think some of the easier things to do in your hotel room for 14 days is to keep your flexibility I, with, the, with the way that you can do bands and body uh, strength exercises with just your body weight. Keeping your strength is, should be able to get done. I think Tennis Australia has done a great job getting at least uh, one cardio equipment, like an exercise bike, so you can keep your cardio, which is so important. 
So it's more like um, little subtle things. Like I, I like the fact that some of the players have sort of made an impromptu backboard in their room with the, like a rollaway bed up on its end. So you hit against the mattress, you can hit as hard as you want. And the mattress, it only bounces back like, you know, eight feet. Yep. You move the furniture, you, you just, you be creative because, you know, like your hand is so important in tennis and keeping just simple things like keeping your calluses and keeping your hand tough enough so that when you come out and you start playing um, that you don't get blisters. So that's why I think even if you could do a half hour, 45 minutes of hitting against the mattress or, or even doing those little volleys against the wall, uh, that's really important. Um, but the mental side is really, really crucial. So some of the things I think we all know that you can do and so a lot of the players I think are doing is some guided meditation and just some imagery. Um, if, if I was with the technology, I would watch my best matches I've ever played. I would look at, you know, some of my favorite points and, and what I did, some of the smart point construction that makes me a great player. I would watch that and I would stay fresh with like, maybe, maybe watch a match that you played where your serve was just right, or your crucial shot, your big forehand, like if you're on Dresky, would go back, you know, I definitely watched the first set and a half of the Serena Williams US Open final, which is played on a hard court, the same similar court as uh, in Melbourne. So I think there's a lot of things you can do. And the point is, you got to stay positive. Um, you you got to think of the blessings and the gratitude of what you do have. And if you get too stuck on what you don't have, like you don't have proper training and you don't have an actual tennis court, then you're going to decline emotionally and mentally. And as you say, it's, it's crucial that that part remains strong. Yeah. And it's, well, obviously if something like that were to transpire during uh, your playing career, we wouldn't see sort of the social media side of this and we wouldn't really get the sense of how certain players are feeling. And, uh, you know, we do get a bit of insight in, into these players and how they are doing emotionally at times because they, they are sharing their stories of hitting balls against walls. And then we're seeing sometimes the frustrated side of it as well. But uh, you, you brought up a very interesting point uh, about you know, looking back at, at film and uh, it's not something that I've really thought of when I think of the sport of tennis, obviously here, but the film room and in football and, and hockey, was that something you actively did as a player as well? Go back and watch matches or. Not much. I mean, some of the best matches I ever played. Um, I mean, like when I got the finals U S open in 1978, I don't think my entire match when I beat Martina Navratilova in the semifinals, I don't even think it exists. Every once in a while, when I get, uh, I want to take a trip down memory lane and watch a match where I thought like I played really well. There's a YouTube highlight when I beat Steffi Groff in her, in her grand, golden grand slam year in Madison square garden in an unbelievable setting with the crowd was packed. That was in the days where we would sell out Madison square garden, especially on the weekend. This was in a semifinal, a Saturday match. So sometimes I'll go back and look at that and say, okay, that's the way you should have played all your matches. Cause I would come to net sometimes even on her first serve. Wow. If I get, if I knew where her first serve, if I kind of picked it cause it was short in the court and I just take it, bun it yep. and come, come to net. And I ended up beating her in straight sets. I know she didn't play her best tennis, but I'd like to think my, the way I played did it. So yeah, I think if I was in today's game with today's technology, I would actually watch a lot of film. Um, not just about myself, obviously about opponents, but I actually think people should watch more their own game. And when they, when they play at their best or um, 
instead of focusing maybe on the negative stuff, really watch like the best of uh, your shots. Yeah, I uh, I completely agree. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada. Our guest this week is ESPN broadcaster, former player Pam Shriver. And uh, just shifting over to the men's side, because as usual, we have great storylines and a few events on the horizon, including the ATP Cup, which I thought was just fantastic uh, last year. Uh, I, I think a lot of eyes will be on Novak Djokovic. He's looking for an eighth title down under. And then we have Rafael, Rafael Nadal trying to pass uh, Roger Federer for the all-time Grand Slam count. Um, but just beyond sort of the big three storylines, are, are there any particular players that especially intrigue you going into 2021? Obviously, we had Dominic Team win his first slam title in 2020. But if Pam, the analyst, if, if there's one player you have your eye especially on for 2021, who would that be? Well, besides thinking about what the tally of the big three will end up at the end of this year, uh, if you strip away that I would look at what you just mentioned Dominic team since he won the U.S. Open although that final was not was not a very pretty final it was a final between two players who were so nervous trying to win their first in the era of the big three Um, but I think Dominic team played so well last year down in Melbourne and I expect he's going to be a very difficult out and I also think he's managed to stay pretty match tough throughout a difficult 12 months to stay match tough because he played a lot of exhibitions and he sort of put himself out there competing as much as he could. I I find Medvedev such a fascinating uh, player. The way he plays uh, when he gets hot, he is so tough. And yet when you watch him and you watch his strokes, they're a little bit unconventional and you're you're not quite sure. Like the four, I look at the forehand and I think this forehand is going to break down more than it does. But when he gets going, like he did at the US Open 15, 16 months ago, and then when he won the um, ATP Tour Finals, uh, he's amazing to watch and I would suspect he enters 2021 feeling like this could be the year that he wins his first major Um, and I guess if I look at the big three I'm really fascinated at how Djokovic is uh, just gaining on both Federer and Nadal and because he is younger and because uh, the way he plays and the wins on all surfaces um, to me he's the odds on uh, one of the big three to end up on top at the end of uh, the end of their time. Yeah. And uh, certainly, as you said, I think seems like the freshest of the three. Of course, we won't have Roger Federer competing at the Australian Open, but we hope for his uh, healthy return in 2021. Um, here in Canada, I think we'll be fascinated to see Canada try and battle Serbia at the upcoming ATP Cup. I, I mean, we spoke about it briefly, but uh, what do you make of the success we're, we're having up here in terms of our Canadian talent? Well, I think it shows you have a really great system, terrific coaches. Um, you know, uh, I think it's been funded well, um, but you still need the best athletes, don't you? You need great athletes. So when I think about the athleticism of, say, Felix or Dennis and even Milos with that big serve, um, you know, they have tremendous athletic skills. Um, so, I mean, you can you can be a great tennis player, but unless you're an exceptional athlete, and when you think about the big three, they're great at everything, but they're unbelievably skilled athletes. And so I actually think your Canadian stars and and even, you know, especially Andrescu, she may be the best athlete of all of them, all of your Canadian athletes and tennis players. Um, 
I, I just hope she can stay healthy because part of a athlete being a great athlete is being able to have longevity and being able to keep your body in, uh, in healthy enough physical shape so that you can compete um, consistently. And that we haven't seen that yet from Andrescu, but boy, when she is healthy, she's been one of the most intriguing players to watch the last couple of years in women's tennis. So I think it's a combination of, um, you know, athletic ability, skill, coaching, and the right support system. Um, so it doesn't matter. We see from Novak, you don't have to be from a tennis, uh, you know, you don't have to be from Southern California, South Florida, or Southern Spain in order to have great tennis players as, uh, as uh, both Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic will tell you. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. Um, love to wrap today with, uh, we have a few fan questions actually for you that were, were posed on Instagram. Um, this one is from R. Carlo, who is wondering, uh, what was your favorite tournament to play during your career? Ooh, I had a, I had a couple, I'm going to go a couple different levels. The all, my favorite all women's tournament was called Family Circle Cup, now Volvo Car Open. It's played in South Carolina. It was at Hilton Head when I was playing and now in Charleston, one of the great small cities in the United States. So that's that category. Um, as far as what you consider sort of the Masters 1000s uh, that now the women I think are trying to brand this similar. Mm -hmm. I actually quite enjoyed, I'm not saying this, I loved coming to Canada. Um, I won my biggest singles title there in 1987. Uh, first time I ever beat Chris Everett. I was 0 for 17. I finally beat Chrissy, beat Sabatini, Chris Everett, and Zena Garrison back to back to back to win my biggest singles title. So I enjoyed coming up north. As far as a major, Wimbledon special, but the U.S. Open's my home major where I got to the finals in 78. I love Melbourne because I love Australia and it's so convenient. But I guess if I have to put one at the very, very top, it would be Wimbledon. There's just something about it on grass court, the traditions, when you walk there for the first time, it almost takes your breath away as a tennis player for its beauty and for its history. Uh, and it's just, it's majestic. We, uh, we really appreciate the uh, Canadian Open uh, Rogers Cup shout out. And uh, I, I just wanted to note this because my co-host who, who's not here today, Mike, actually noted that uh, in the final season that you played singles in 1997, he noted that your last two wins of your career came against Canadians. <laughs> yeah, it was in Oklahoma City. Uh, interesting story for that event. Uh, a dear friend of mine, Sarah Fornishari, she was the tournament owner and promoter. And she actually was the tournament director in the very first tournament I ever played in when I was 15 and a half. That was January, 1978 in Washington, DC, not far from where I grew up in Baltimore. And so I decided to go full circle and finish up in Oklahoma city. It was like a tier three. It was just like a same as a 250 event. Um, yeah. And I, and I played a Canadian in the first round, second round lost in the quarters to Lisa Raymond. But I remember my late husband, Joe Shapiro came to support me and, um, when I finished my career, he said, sweetie, you finished number one in Canada. <laughs> because <laughs> I, I, think that. I, I think when I beat, I, I think the two players I beat were one and two in Canada. So that's how he phrased it. <laughs> that's terrific. Oh, that's, uh, that's fantastic. And perfect way to tie it all in as well. That's great. A um, couple more fan questions for you. This, is, this one is from uh, Tanya. Uh, she's wondering if you have a favorite motivational quote. 
Ooh, favorite motivational quote. Well, in tennis, um, Billie Jean King provided the two best, which is pressure is a privilege and champions adjust. I love those two. Um, probably a motto that I've lived by um, is my late grandmother on my, on my dad's side. We called her Gaga. Um, when, last time I ever saw her, day before she died, she had a simple sentence. She really couldn't say much, but she said, be good. So sort of like be good is like at the core value. I like to try and um, be good, whether it's my service to the sport of tennis or to organizations and not-for-profits that need help. I try to be good. That's a, I love that as well. Last one for you. This one is from Sean. He asks, what new perspective have you gained since moving from a tennis player to analyst? Well, in that more mature stage of my life, I'm not sure it's because I moved from player to analyst, but I just respect certain things and understand certain things like patience and um, recognizing what you have control over and what you don't have control over. And this is something when I think back to my years as a player, I wasn't mature enough to really understand that. And it hurt me. It hurt my temperament. Um, because I just worried too much about things out of my control, like maybe about the wind or, or the position of the sun up one end or um, three net cords that my opponent had in the first set or, or two bad calls at crucial times, things that I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I had no control over it. So you got to be able to let it go. And I think that's when I think about Roger Federer, I think about one of his many great traits is his ability to just recognize what he has control over and what he doesn't. He just gives it up, lets it go. That's a, that's a great message. And I, I love the quote as well. Uh, be good. Definitely something to live by. Uh, Pam, you were very good to us today on Match Point Canada. Thanks so much uh, for joining the program. Well, thanks for having me and all the best up north. May we all have a healthier next few months and get through this. Thank you. There you have it, former world number one in doubles, 21 Grand Slam titles, and current ESPN broadcaster Pam Shriver. And um, I, I took a lot away from that interview, honestly. I was glad to, uh, glad to do it. I, I loved her be good quote that she got from her grandmother. I thought that was just uh, terrific. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't even really need to bring up Canada for her to speak so highly of memories of the Canadian Open, which is uh, just awesome. Yeah, she just launched right into that. And, and I love when guests do that because it's obviously it's unscripted and we're not leading them down that path. But when they choose to go down that path for us, like, oh, jackpot, we don't even have to prompt you. And certainly there's so much to talk about in Canada these days. And, and all of our guests, uh, especially the, the American ones that we have, definitely launch into that. And, uh, and for Pam, I mean, first and foremost, with, with her career, just really interesting to note that she only played the Canadian Open in doubles four times. But each of those four times, she made it all the way to the finals, uh, winning it once, losing three times in the championship match at the uh, then Canadian Open. And there was quite a stretch between the years as well. And I, I want to say I had this last night, but I want to say 1980 was her first uh, appearance in the finals and doubles at the Canadian Open. And her last one was something like 1994. So that's quite a stretch between appearances. And, uh, and to say you played an event four times and made the finals in, in each one is obviously uh, pretty cool. And, uh, and then you spoke to her as well at length about uh, 1987, which she admitted was the, the greatest singles uh, triumph of, of her career when she won and defeated in straight sets um, Sabatini, Chris Everett, 
and Zena Garrison, which is a pretty impressive one, two, three combo right there, including, as she mentioned, the first time in 17 tries that she beat Chrissy Everett. So obviously that, that win in Toronto must uh, occupy a special place in her heart. Yeah, certainly. And I, I was very pleased she kind of gave gave a breakdown, um, kind of a more detailed answer when you're just sort of asked, what is your favorite tournament to play? And we're, we're so used to just hearing, well, Wimbledon is my favorite or the, the French Open is my, my favorite. So for her to kind of go category by category, and she's obviously taken away such great memories from so many of the places that she's played and uh, thrilled to hear that Canada is uh, a soft spot in her heart as well. And amazing that she finished her career singles-wise beating a couple of Canadians, uh, tying it up there nicely uh, to come on Matchpoint Canada was great. Um, I, I was very interested into in what she had to say in terms of currently the 72 players who are still not out of the 14-day quarantine um, in Australia and just the coping mechanism that you require, whether it's tougher physically or mentally. And I certainly had the same thought that mental, uh, the mental side of it is going to be a major challenge for a lot of these players. I feel like these 72 players are forever going to be kind of tied together. And when they see each other at tournaments or at airports, what have you, they'll, they'll always have that connection. Like they were part of the, I don't know. I feel like there should be a name for these 72, like the, the sequestered 72 or something, but uh, can't imagine what they're going through to have a full two weeks in one room. Um, and some of these rooms, judging from what I've seen on social media, I mean, they don't all have wraparound back uh, balcony, sorry like you see uh, Novak's uh, digs have, but they're, they're pretty small rooms at that, right? And, and the players are getting so creative at making the most of the space, but what are they going to be like when they emerge from these rooms after 14 days? And I say that with a bit of a laugh, but to be perfectly honest, you know, and I don't know how, how big it's been addressed by, by those in tennis media or on social media, but it's going to be tough, the mental aspect of just being in there for so long and then coming back out in, into the world, let alone competing in, in a tournament and then the Australian open. So um, to me, I think the, the physical, they seem to be finding ways to um, do whatever they can mm-hmm. um, and, and go check out Vashik Pospisil because he's hard at work in his uh, hotel room for sure on the physical aspect, but just mentally, I think, yeah, for some people and, and any of those athletes who undoubtedly, some of them are going to have some, some mental health challenges to begin with as, as we all, you know, where many people do. Um, I, I think that's a point that's going to be a real tough one as, as they're getting closer at least, but uh, there must be some tough moments for these uh, men and women as they're going through this. Yeah, no doubt. I, I was actually thinking as I, I heard Pam begin to talk about uh, watching something, I, I wasn't expecting her to, to say watch film of your matches. I had in my mind as she started to say that, like, oh, like, binge watch your favorite show <laughs> Netflix, on Netflix, yeah. like watch all of Seinfeld or something like that. But uh, no, may, and maybe that is actually a great tip to, uh, I, I guess, keep your focus, um, not singular on tennis, but realize like what you're wishing to accomplish when you finally break out of that room. Like you're doing the physical side of training, but maybe just like giving yourself that memory of what it feels like to play pro tennis, like within a tournament again. So for Bianca Andreescu, yeah. Imagine watching back that U S open final for 2019. Um, you know, Bianca is not part of the 70, uh, 72 players who are in quarantine, but I also feel like she has her separate side of quarantine where she hasn't played for 15 plus months. So that's a, a different scenario altogether. Um, yeah. one thing yeah. that, well, Bianca, kind of, Bianca is part of that group, is she not? Because she was on, was she not on the plane with, um, oh, maybe with, with right. Sylvain Bruno? Right, actually, that's a good point. Yeah, so I think so. I think she is part of that, and um, but it's hard to keep track of them of them all, right? Who is, who isn't? Um, 
And I, I did notice on her Instagram, I believe, watching some of her highlights from the U.S. Open. So definitely taking that suggestion that Pam Shriver had to heart. And, um, you know, that, that's a good point. I mean, for me, I was never much of a tennis player at all. So the, the best sport I ever participated in was hockey. Again, I wasn't great, but I definitely did better than a, at a tennis. And I would definitely watch my clips as a goalie, as a goaltender. And I wanted to see my saves. I didn't want to see so much the, the goals I let in. I could already pretty much self-analyze those when they happened, know what I did wrong. I wanted to see the big saves and the good moments to mm -hmm. pump me up and get me feeling confident. And so if you're in a hotel room for two weeks and you can't even really practice, I would say, yeah, hell yeah, definitely go back and watch your greatest moments to get yourself feeling good for when you come out. Because all the players who haven't quarantined, they're out there practicing already. You see them yeah. on the court and in Melbourne and uh, you'd have to think they've got a distinctive advantage. So you got to try and at least work yourself up so that when you walk out of that room, you feel like you belong with those players that have been practicing for the past two weeks outside. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I just want to bring this up before we move on. One, one point that kind of crosses my mind, especially the physical aspect of being in quarantine and coming out, uh, which will be such a challenge, I think particularly on the men's side, is these players are going to be ramping up for best three out of five. And one of a few of the players made the point that that's a different type of beast that you're training for, especially in the hot summer um, of, of Australia down under, to be able to adapt to those conditions and be prepared to play best three out of five five tennis and having such a short turnaround. So um, the physical demand there, uh, you can't quite simulate inside a hotel room. So that is something I think we have to watch for, especially, you know, the first few rounds of this tournament, how people, how guys handle it. Do you think the players that are out and about and not quarantined are going to have a, a distinctive, like a, a noticeable advantage? Do you think we're going to see those players do much better at the first tournaments, at least before the Aussie Open? than the ones who've been in the hotel room? Or do you think the ones coming out of quarantine are going to be so jazzed to get back outside and just so full of, you know, um, exuberance and adrenaline that they're going to hit the court and be like, damn, I'm so happy to be back out here. I'm seizing the moment now. Yeah, that's a good question. I think, you know, I think adrenaline can play a very big role probably within that first week when they do get back. And there have been little tweaks to the tournament schedule, which is going to allow them a couple days proper court time before they actually have to play in these tournaments, a couple days extra. So I don't know that we're going to noticeably see it in these first lead up events before the Australian open. I just wonder if we're going to see it like within the first week of the actual Grand Slam tournament when you're pushing on into a fourth and fifth set. Are there a couple players we notice wearing down, breaking down on the men's side? And does the same thing happen on the women's side as, as well? I guess that's what I'll be watching for. Yeah. And that'd be totally understandable too. I mean, my heart is going to go out to those players that lose in their first match back and then first round at the Aussie open too. Yeah. Inevitably, some of them will fall into that category and uh, that's going to be a tough one after going through all that they've been through. Um, you know, they're going to need to have their, their tires pumped for sure. Um, you know, to get back on track because, uh, oh God, um, you know, what a, what a tough ask, you know, what these athletes are being forced to do and, and not to take away. And we talked about this last week on the podcast, obviously there's a bigger context going on and, and so, you know, people have it much tougher in, in many places of the world who aren't professional athletes, but, you know, still given the context, I think we can feel some level of sympathy for what uh, they're having to deal with as well here.
Yeah, certainly. Uh, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben Lewis. He's Mike McIntyre. Remember, you can find us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. You can find us on Instagram as well at Matchpoint Canada. We do have a schedule for the ATP Cup, which uh, to me was such a thrilling event at the front end of 2020 last year, coming a bit later this time around. And uh, this draw for Team Canada feels almost familiar. It feels a little bit like deja vu, to be honest. Uh, they have Serbia and Germany. Germany in a very, very challenging Group A. And right off the bat, I mean, this is starting February 2nd, but right away we're going to get a, a rematch of Denis Shapovalov, Novak Djokovic in, you know, a matchup and a head-to-head that's been very one-sided. Novak leads at 5 nothing. But if there's one match I'm pointing to between these two where Denis almost had Novak on the brink, it is this same point last year at the ATP Cup. Yeah, it went to a third set tiebreak, did it not? Yes, Seven, it did. Yeah, so... Uh, I'm scrolling through my Twitter feed here because someone said earlier that it was rigged, that the draw was rigged. <laughs> and, uh, oh, I wish I could remember who it was. It's someone that chimes in with us quite a bit, actually. But I think it was Greg, good... uh, Greg Johansson. That's it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't think it's rigged, but it's got to feel that way in, in some you know way, shape, or form. As Yeah, we had Germany in the round robin last year along with uh, Australia and Greece. Uh, and Canada did get through then to the quarterfinals where they lost in three straight to, to Serbia. Um, I mean, Serbia and Spain last year were the two that I suppose if you had to pick initially, they were probably among the favorites given that they had Novak and Rafa Nadal. Um, how, how do I feel this year? I, it's a good question. I mean, Chapo's certainly capable um, and, and depending on what brand of, you know, what, what level of his tennis he's going to bring onto the court, like, like, you know, Dennis can hit lightning in a bottle at any time. So, yep. um, you know, and how he fared against Zverev in singles a year ago, beating him 6-2, 6-2, he's got to have confidence from this event. Uh, as he gets back to it. So it's it's not an easy draw for sure. I think there's many other combinations that Canadian tennis fans would have liked to have um, received. I guess on the positive side, if you can get through Serbia and Germany to advance, you got to be feeling good about your chances against anybody after that point in time, especially given that unfortunately we've drawn Serbia on day one and then have to play again the very next day on day two. They don't even have a day of rest in between as Canada is going back to back days. So if we make it out and end up in the semifinals, I don't think there is a quarterfinals this year, mm-hmm. um, then you got to feel good about them at that point. Yeah, yeah. This is obviously a brutal stretch of a couple of days. And, uh, you know, it, it feels weird to refer to Milos Raonic as the wild card in this scenario. But I think he might be the more reliable workhorse on this team, potentially. Um, he'll face Dusan Lajevic in that first match against Serbia. Their head-to-head is 1-1, but I would certainly uh, give a heavy favorite to Milos in that matchup. Dusan is a nice player, but uh, what we've seen from Raonic, at least in 2020, his level of play... Uh, I think he's superior in that matchup. And uh, I think he would give uh, Germany's Jan Leonard Struff uh, a lot of trouble too. It's actually a little ironic that the one versus one in singles for Germany, Canada, Denis Shapovalov, you almost like his chances more against Zverev as opposed to Struff, who just seems to give him nightmares for whatever reason. Yeah, that's a good point. So maybe we're fortunate that they're slotted this way because between you and me, I still consider Milos our number one. And uh, I think if he had been healthy last year, there's a, you know, for, for more of the year, if there had been more of the year that he probably would have, uh, you know, or potentially finished number one for Canada. So I still kind of peg him as our number one guy. And especially he plays so well in Australia. So having him as a number two is super dangerous. And that's what gives our team a, a, an advantage of, of sorts is I think in the number two slot, we're as good as anybody. Um, how would you compare this squad to last year? And I, 
I guess when I say squad, I really just look at the number one, number two guys and no offense to Steven Diaz or Peter Polanski, but we're not going to see them in singles barring an injury um, or, or at some point, I suppose, if it already looks like all hope is lost. And even in doubles, I'm not quite sure what the plan is, but I mean, I'd be going with Shapo and, and Milos if they're both feeling good after their singles matches for sure. So just compared to last year, where last year was Felix and Dennis, the two young guys carrying the squad, and Felix did seem to struggle in that event versus this year where you've got the veteran in Milos and the young guy in Dennis. And maybe that dynamic will, will work a little bit better for Canada. Yeah, I think one aspect that's going to lend really in this team's favor is especially when you're trying to find your footing for a lot of these players in these lead up events and tournaments. I, I think there's nothing more frightening than facing a player like Milos Raonic trying to determine a, a timing on a serve like that. So to me, that's kind of the secret weapon that this team possesses. And to me, at the front end of 2020 last year, I don't want to say Felix was overwhelmed by the moment in the tournament, although they were huge crowds, but he was, you know, not really playing his sharpest tennis at all. We, we saw the form come kind of after ATK, ATP Cup and Australian Open. He had a nice stretch of play sort of later February prior to the pandemic. And then we saw a great stretch of play from him at the U.S. Open. But you look back to the front end of 2020, that was not when Felix was playing his best tennis, as you say. And I just think in terms of consistency, our number one consistent Canadian, as you say, is Milos Raonic. So I, I kind of sense what we're going to get in terms of quality of tennis from him on, on most days. And that's why I would maybe prefer Canada's chances in some of these matchups. At the same time, it is such a challenging group. And Serbia is no doubt the favorite. You know what's not going to be challenging, fortunately, is being able to watch these matches for those who are back here in Canada because it's a 10 a.m. start local in Melbourne, which is 6 p.m. Eastern time. So for us here in well, we're in Toronto, but uh, even the rest of the country, those times are definitely workable. Uh, I feel like we can get through the two singles matches. And, you know, if you're willing to stay up late, probably get through the doubles too and still report to, to work on duty the next day or, uh, or whatever you have to do. So uh, I like the times and uh, looking forward to catching those on TSN here in Canada. Yeah, it will be uh, great, great to see on the women's side. Um, we have a handful of events actually just ahead of the Australian Open. Uh, the WTA actually added an additional event. So three WTA 500 tournaments. We're going to get used to saying that because they finally restructured that format. But we'll get the, uh, the Gippsland Trophy, the Yarra Valley Classic, and then the Grampians Trophy. I was curious if maybe Bianca Andreescu would enter one of these just as kind of a lead-up event before the Australian Open. But um, through all that I've checked, from my understanding, she is not on any of these entry lists at this point. Yeah, I haven't seen anything either. And uh, kind of radio silence, too, when trying to uh, get in touch with the team there. So, you know, they're no doubt starting to get a little bit anxious as they are getting close to the, the long awaited return. What, 15 months, almost 16 months since her last match. Um, and so uh, I can understand on one hand, probably being a little bit more guarded. We'll just have to wait and see. But the good news is it's a thumbs up all around from what we, we have heard and seen from Bianca on social media that she definitely is ready for the Australian Open. And uh, won't it be so great to, to finally get her back on court after all that she's been through? Yeah, yeah, will be a fantastic Australian Open set to begin February 8th. I just wanted to note, uh, and it's a major disappointment, he had 
had the positive test for COVID-19. And then this was a question mark of whether he could make the travel and play any Murray pulled out of the Australian open. And uh, he said, quote, that he was gutted not to play, obviously a, a very UK type of expression, but uh, unfortunately we won't have any Murray uh, playing the Australian open, but he seems keen to at least compete uh, through the bulk of 2021 in singles. Yeah. My God, hasn't Andy Murray been through enough already? Can't, can't he catch a break? Um, It's been a long time now since Andy Murray's been able to be healthy and play for any real stretch. I mean, it'll be five years this summer now already since his last slam win at Wimbledon. And since then, remarkably, and this really shocked me when I was looking, he's only played in four Grand Slam events since Wimbledon 2017, which is going to be, you know, we're coming up on four years. So I think it's a big ask for him. And you were talking earlier about how best of five is going to be challenging for people coming out of quarantine. I think best of five for him at any point this season is, is going to be a big ask. And so, you know, hopefully he can get, you know, a few good tournaments still in there and, and show us some glimpses of, of what he can do when he's on his game. But I think it's been so long now that uh, the, the time of seeing Andy Murray as a grand slam threat has unfortunately probably uh, come and gone. And, and that doesn't take away from the great career that he's had and, and all that he's accomplished. And when you talk about, you know, the big three, I mean, there was a time we were talking about the big four, and, uh, and he was the, the fourth one in there, obviously, and, and gave us plenty of reason for that. Yeah, of course. It wasn't just the Grand Slam success either. We saw it at the Masters 1000 level, winning 15 of those. We saw it him, him getting to world number one, which is an achievement we, we haven't seen from any player outside of uh, that note of big three, as you mentioned, uh, in what I want to say, you know, a decade and a half or so, it feels like. So um, certainly one of the greats. Unfortunately, he, he will not be competing at the Australian Open, but uh, hope for a safe recovery and he can be back maybe for the hard court swing. Also, just a note, American Steven Johnson, uh, Stevie Johnson just pulled out as well due to the birth of his child. I imagine we're going to see a few other names kind of fall by the wayside ahead of the tournament, but uh, we, we still have lead up events to go and that ATP cup uh, that we can't wait to see, of course. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm done with this little lull in the schedule already. I'm ready yeah. to get some, uh, you know, consistent tennis on, on TV and, and to see what's going on and cheer for, you know, the Canadians have the Canadians hopefully have a, a great start and, uh, and, and that we have a grand slam coming up soon. And, and hopefully as many of these players who are there are, are COVID free and able to play it and, and play to a level that, that they're, you know, content and satisfied with given everything they've been through. And um, yeah, let's get going. So, you know, good episode tonight. Good interview with, uh, with Pam Shriver, Ben, you did a great job and uh, looking forward to, uh, to our next episode. Thank you. Appreciate that. And appreciate all of you for listening. This is Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time.